Chapter 8 of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dispatching the Secret Messenger Evans now lived aboard the battleship Delaware, Admiral Johnson's flagship, and here the life was different indeed from that on the mothership of the destroyer flotilla. He found himself one of a large number of warrant officers, some real old-timers, but most of them much younger men than himself. To his great delight, he found on board the Delaware his old friend Lindsay, erstwhile radio officer of the cruiser that had taken him to England. Lindsay had now risen to the rank of lieutenant and was in command of a turret on the great super-dreadnought. But the same sunny disposition and cordial informality were unchanged. He still was not too proud to associate with a warrant officer. Lindsay knew how to enjoy himself on an evening ashore. He had a faculty for finding out when there was any merrymaking going on, and for being there. Evans, having little time or inclination to join in the crude pleasures which most of his fellow warrant officers sought in the town, now found real refreshment in knocking about on shore with Lindsay, the natural geniality of the youth being of a compelling sort. He managed to get Lindsay talking more than once about his own affairs and learned that in his home in the Middle West, his widowed mother depended on his savings as her chief means of support. Now, there are haunts in Punta Delgada where a visitor may find a roulette wheel spinning merrily of an evening. The scraps of paper representing Portuguese money fly hither and thither on the long table, and ever like a nemesis the treasurer rakes them in as a man rakes in autumn leaves that strew the road. He who frequents the roulette wheel often becomes poorer, else there would not be roulette wheels. Now this game had a fatal fascination for Lindsay, who was one of those individuals that love to take a chance and can always persuade themselves that next time they'll make a pile. Once he had won a surprising sum of money at roulette and had sent it home to his mother before the opportunity to lose it again had beset him. Since then his earnings had nearly all fallen into the hungry maw of the spinning wheel. The most pathetic feature of the case was the way his eagerness to send more money home kept luring the incautious youth into taking another chance at the losing game. Once on an evening before the fleet was to put to sea for some maneuver, Evans, dead tired from his arduous toil, was planning to go to bed early and get a long sleep. As supper time drew near, Lindsay, making for the gangway to catch the last boat taking a liberty party ashore, chanced to meet Evans on deck. "'Are you coming ashore? It's going to be a great night on the beach,' he said. "'I guess I'll stay aboard and turn in early.' "'Oh, come on, be a sport, old man,' said Lindsay genially. "'Lord knows where we're going on this cruise or when we'll get back. There'll be all kinds of fun in town tonight.' You'll have to break out a pile of excitement to get me ashore tonight. Why? What's the matter with you? I suppose I've been hitting too hot a pace, said Evans with an enigmatic look on his face. Oh, quit your kidding and come ashore, said Lindsay. Evans hesitated a minute. The fact is, I'm kind of tired and don't seem to feel like hunting all the hilarity there is, he said. But there's a little restaurant that you may not know of where you can get a good supper and hear some rather good music. It's a quiet place, and most of the men don't seem to know it. 
if you'd like to go and have supper there on me and have a good heart-to-heart talk, that would suit me as well as staying on board. All right, I'll go and try your quiet restaurant with you, for a starter, anyway. So off they went and took their places in the motor sailor at the gangway. Once ashore, Evans led the way through the crooked streets to a picturesque little building where a modest restaurant served a few familiar patrons. A small orchestra consisting of a piano, a double bass cello, and one or two other instruments ensconced in a nook by some potted palms beguiled the supper hour for such as sought the little hostelry. Evans and Lindsay, alone save for two natives of the town, chose a table from which they could look out over the harbor and just near enough the orchestra to get the full benefit of the music. Lindsay at first felt a little dismayed at the lack of gaiety which seemed destined to characterize the celebration of his night on shore. But soon the appetizing food and the melodious strains of a Portuguese air put him in a mood for the enjoyment of a quiet evening chatting freely with his friend. Evans was more than ten years his senior, but of that Lindsay had no suspicion. Their talk drifted easily from the personnel of the flagship through the wide range of human affairs. The orchestra, after a brief rest, struck up a Strauss waltz, once familiar to all, now known only to those of Evans's age and older. Evans stopped talking and listened, a faraway look coming into his eyes, and his hand unconsciously beating time on the table. "'Lord, how that takes me back to old times,' he said." Their talk drifted back to the States and into speculation as to what people were thinking and doing at home. The orchestra paused again and then began to play a song once popular in all modern cities, now long since out of fashion, a song whose melodious sweetness had made it a favorite in its day and commended it now to the little Portuguese orchestra, guided more by melody than by vogue. As Lindsay recognized the tune, vivid memories of his childhood rose before him, and as the rich, deep tones of the double bass cello vibrated with the appealing spirit of the melody, the long-forgotten past swept over him like a flood. His eyes became moist, and he sat in silence till the music had ceased for some time. Then he spoke and told Evans of the early memories awakened by the song. He felt that he could speak to Evans of things he couldn't mention to his other shipmates, for Evans understood. And so it was that the youth poured out his heart to the older man, giving vent to feelings long deeply repressed within him. He told of his concern about his mother, his zeal to bring her no shame, his hopes and ambitions, his temptations and struggles, and in all this he found what without knowing it he had craved since leaving home the confidence of a friend on whom he could lean as on an older brother. Evans, in his turn, found in this intimacy with the younger man something that satisfied a long-felt want, and he thanked his stars for it. With a deepening bond of sympathy, they talked till the players had packed up their instruments and gone. All thoughts of seeking the usual pleasures of the town had now evaporated, and it was only when the time came to catch the last boat returning to the flagship that they left the little restaurant and walked down to the landing. Next day, Lindsay's monthly pay, which had been lying restless in his pocket the night before, was dispatched intact to his mother in the Middle West. 
About the middle of November, a few days after Evans and Elkins arrived at Punta Delgada, Commander Barton had also arrived from Washington and took charge of the Naval Intelligence Service at Communication Headquarters on shore. Before leaving Washington, he interviewed an officer who rendered notable service in finding men for unusual duties. If a man was needed to make a corner in glue for the government or to deliver a consignment of homing pigeons in northern Russia, he would find just the man for the job. To this officer, Barton made the request that as soon as possible, a man with experience as a spy in enemy territory and with some knowledge of radio be chosen for important duties at the Azores and elsewhere. He was to be enrolled as a chief petty officer and sent to Punta Delgada to report at communication headquarters. Barton's parting injunctions were, much will depend on him, look him over well, and be sure he's a real man. About three weeks after this, while Evans was in the radio room of the flagship, busily engaged in the congenial task of rehabilitating this vital nerve center of the fleet and undoing the damage wrought by Brigham, he received a cryptic message from Commander Barton, intimating that a friend had arrived from home whom he would like Evans to see. Evans obtained permission for shore liberty and proceeded to communication headquarters. There, he learned that the man requested by Barton for important duties had arrived, a man of 36 named Kendrick. He had been an Army spy who, being sent by aeroplane behind enemy lines, had been for some weeks performing valuable duties in Spain and had just returned successfully to Washington. By some maneuver of which very few are master, great masses of red tape had been cut, and he had been transferred to the Navy, enrolled as a chief radio electrician, and sent at once to Punta Delgada. He had as yet been kept completely in the dark as to the nature of the duties for which he had been sent. Evans opened conversation with him informally and questioned him concerning his experiences in enemy countries, then as to his knowledge of radio. After a somewhat prolonged interview, in some of which Barton took part, Kendrick was still quite in the dark as to the real object of his mission, although given clearly to understand that it had to do with radio communication. During their talk, Evans watched closely the play of Kendrick's features and said to himself, he looks like three or four men in one. I guess he's what we're after. But along with this reflection came the disquieting thought. What if he's one man too many? Perhaps there was more in his performance in enemy country than was known to the Army Intelligence Service. Cases were by no means unknown in which the most valued spies had been really in the enemy employ. Keenly, Evans sought to sense all that lay beneath this mobile exterior as they talk. But this was a task for someone other than a scientist. He longed for the power of a master sleuth. We are all quite accustomed to trusting our lives to the nervous coordination of a taxicab driver and thinking nothing of it. But when the fate of the world may hang on the sensory impressions, the resulting nerve impulses in the brain, and the emotional responses thereby aroused in one individual by barely perceptible motions in the features of another, we may well consider the great importance of little things, especially if those little things be nerve impulses. 
That this man had been a consummately successful spy, there could be no doubt. But the question whom he had fooled, Evans dared not consider settled to his satisfaction without further scrutiny. He imparted his wonderings to Barton when they were alone, and, though the latter at first inclined to regard the suspicion as fanciful and too improbable for serious consideration, he finally agreed that they had better scrutinize their man for a few days before revealing to him much of his real task. During the next week, Evans spent a good part of his time training Kendrick in the use of certain radio apparatus, and at the same time striving to assure himself as to his loyalty. Gradually the conviction grew in both Barton and Evans that Kendrick was a man they could trust without fear, but still they said little to him of his mission. About this time there arrived from the States a long, narrow crate addressed to Evans. The supply clerk who handled the shipment remarked, That's some box, Gunner. What do you expect's in it? Looks like an eight-day clock, was the answer. Still, my watch keeps pretty good time, he added with a puzzled look. Do you want to open it here? asked the clerk. No, it will litter things up to scatter the crate around here. I'll get it lugged down to the shore where I can turn it adrift. So some hands were summoned and, having moved the crate down to the shore, were dismissed. Evans then opened it by himself. The wildest guess which the supply clerk could have made as to its contents would have been far from the truth, for never in his life had he seen such an object. It contained a sort of narrow, decked-over canoe built especially on the lines of an Eskimo kayak. To the unfamiliar observer, it would give the impression of frailty such that he who would venture beyond easy swimming distance from shore in such a craft must be foolhardy to the verge of madness. In point of fact, as the Eskimo well knows, this type of boat is so seaworthy as to be safe in almost any gale that blows. Evans had a friend who had traveled much among the Eskimos and studied their ways, and especially the handling of their kayaks. This man had built himself two or three of these light craft, patterned in the main on the lines used by the Eskimos, and in years gone by had taught Evans to handle them in rough water. It was one of these that he had now placed at Evans' disposal. As he ripped off the last of the crate and brought to view the graceful lines of the little craft, Evans smiled at the memory of pleasant hours spent paddling off the rough New England coast. He fitted together the two halves of the double-bladed paddle which came with her, then lifted the kayak on his shoulder, carried her to the water's edge, and launched her. Then, getting in and sitting in the bottom, Eskimo fashion, he paddled away along the shore, with a thrill of joy, he felt the familiar responsive motion as the light and buoyant little craft sped forward. Skirting the shoreline, he came in a few minutes to a secluded and unfrequented spot where the contour of the rocks afforded a sheltered and convenient place to land. Lifting the kayak out of the water, he concealed her well above the high water mark. The next day, he took Kendrick to the spot where the kayak lay hidden dragged her out into view, and said, Do you think you could make a landing on an exposed seacoast in that? Kendrick stared at the delicate-looking craft and answered, Well, 
If you asked me if I thought I could swim over Niagara Falls without inconvenience, I should about as soon say yes. Evans laughed. Oh, it isn't as bad as that. I've a friend who used to play in that kayak by the hour in the ocean surf where it breaks on outlying ledges, just for the fun of it, and I've done it more or less myself. I'll teach you the game. I expect we shall want you to do something like that pretty soon. It's surprising how little violence there is in big waves if you float freely on them in a small boat. A tennis ball suffers little violence in a sea that pounds a battleship with a stress measured in tons. It's only rough if you resist it. If you stay just outside where the waves actually break, their motion is all up and down. You can sit there at your leisure and study the situation farther in. Let me show you how it works. I'll paddle round the point to where there's a moderate sea breaking. You can follow along the shore and see for yourself how simple it is. So saying, he launched the kayak and paddled out round the rocky point to where he felt the heave of the ocean swell. Kendrick followed along the shore watching him curiously. Evans paddled close to the shore, keeping just where the waves curled up before they broke on the rocks. Presently, he found a place to his liking and, turning the bow of the kayak toward the shore, rested as he studied the action of the breaking waves between him and Kendrick, who stood watching from a high rock just above. Some thirty feet from the actual shoreline was a barrier of rock, the highest part of which rose clear above the water, while even the lowest part was barely uncovered in the trough of the largest waves. Over this ledge, the seas broke, each wave sending a torrent of frothy water into the deeper pool beyond, which seethed like a cauldron streaked with shifting patterns of foam, and as each wave receded, another torrent would flow out over the ledge till, balked by the crest of an incoming wave, it was lost in a smother of white foam. As the kayak rose and fell on the waves, its pointed bow barely beyond the edge of this dangerous-looking reef, Kendrick wondered that it was not caught by the inward rush of water and dashed on the rocks. Presently, just as a good-sized wave came rolling in and curled right under the kayak before breaking, he saw Evans give a few quick strokes which carried him forward on the crest of the wave. It broke, and in the midst of the great mass of white water pouring in over the ledge came the kayak, floating lightly till well within the pool where on the agitated waters she bobbed up and down like an eggshell, while Evans rested his paddle on the cockpit combing as if taking his ease on a mill pond. Then, looking at the shoreline, he chose a gently sloping shelf of rock, which was half submerged when the pool was filled by the larger waves, but which each receding wave left bare, and paddling swiftly forward on the crest of a large wave, grounded, and thrusting his paddle firmly into a niche in the rock, held himself there as the water poured back off the shelf. Then, Jumping out, he seized the kayak and ran with it up to the dry rocks above without even wetting his feet. Sitting down beside Kendrick, who felt as if some miracle had brought him safely ashore, he said, You see, if you find a place like this, it really isn't hard at all, and you can almost always find a place as good as this if you hunt for it. The main thing to remember is that the waves aren't all alike. 
Sometimes a small wave will recede so quickly that you'll be caught on the rocks just when you think you're going over them. You must take your time and watch a lot of them till you know what sort of thing they do, then choose your wave as you see it coming. I suppose you'll want to take the boat back over land, said Kendrick. You couldn't very well get out again through that, could you? Quite easily, said Evans. I'll show you how that works. After a big wave, there's a lot of water going out, enough to float you over the ledge. But wouldn't the next wave coming in swamp you? Not at all. That's the beauty of a decked-in boat like this. It doesn't matter if she buries her nose well under water. She'll ship very little over the cockpit combing. Another thing, the main secret of her seaworthiness is the fact that you sit in the bottom. Your center of gravity is so low that you have enormous stability. Big waves can break on you broadside without tipping you over. If you watch her closely and see how she behaves in breaking waves for a while, you'll get the idea of the thing better than I can tell it to you. So saying, Evans carried the kayak down to his landing place on the sloping shelf and, watching his chance, put her down as a wave receded, climbed in, and waited for another to come and float him off. On the next large wave, foamy and tumultuous though it was, he floated gently off the rock and shoved himself out into deep water. Kendrick watched intently as he paddled out till the bow of the kayak was just over the inner edge of the rocky barrier. A big wave came rushing in and as it broke seemed to engulf the sharp bow of the kayak, then lifted it high into the air as if to turn her over backwards and throw her across the pool. But instead, she rose gracefully as the crest passed under her, and the next moment, Evans was paddling her swiftly into the stream of water already starting to pour out over the ledge. Gliding smoothly out, he plunged into the next wave just as it broke on the outer edge of the reef and almost disappeared from view in the white froth. But again the kayak rose as the crest passed under her, and now she was riding like a duck on the heaving waters beyond the reef. Several times Evans rode this buoyant craft in and out of the pool in order to familiarize Kendrick with her behavior under such conditions, and incidentally, it must be admitted, for the sport of the thing. Then he paddled back round the point to the hiding place of the kayak, where he explained to Kendrick what he was there for. We want you to go to Gibraltar, he said, and the quickest way of getting you there from here, unobserved, seems to be to have you land in this thing somewhere near Cape Trafalgar. You can't land where there are people. That's why it has to be on an exposed coast instead of a snug harbor. Although you might work the mouth of a small stream, I suppose you can manage to get to Gibraltar without exciting suspicion once you get ashore, can't you? Once I get ashore, yes, answered Kendrick. Once I get ashore, I can manage the rest easy. It's getting ashore in that damn thing that worries me. If I were in your shoes, it would be the other way round, said Evans. Landing in a kayak is play, but to smuggle myself into a stronghold of the enemy as one of them? Ye gods! I'd be paralyzed at the start and wouldn't know where to begin. It's all in what you're used to, said Kendrick. I'm so used to knocking around Spain and bluffing my way along, it's more or less second nature. 
Your game is very different from ours here at headquarters, said Evans, musing. We can play our game something like chess, taking our time to think out the next move. Your game is more like tennis. You've got to hit the ball when it comes and place it where the other fellow can't get it, and your time to act is measured in hundredths of a second. He then went on to explain to Kendrick the purpose of his mission and told him how Herringham was established in Constantinople with radio operators in enemy stations for the purpose of communicating with the Allies. But the distance from Constantinople to the Azores hampered direct radio communication, and it was therefore important to install another radio man at Gibraltar to relay messages between Constantinople and Punta Delgada. His problem was to get himself established as an operator in the main radio station of the enemy at Gibraltar. In the art of making himself acceptable and trusted by the enemy, he was a master, almost, if not quite, unsurpassed. How to proceed to do this was to be left to him. Commander Barton will give you points about establishing communication with Herringham, said Evans, my job is to show you how to adapt their apparatus to your needs once you get your hands on it and how to superpose your messages to us on their regular traffic. Also, to teach you how to get ashore safely in this kayak. It was planned, he explained, to have a seaplane take him and the kayak at early dawn to a point within easy paddling distance of the Spanish coast and leave him to find a landing place where he could approach with the least risk of detection, landing preferably at dusk. With the help of our weather experts, said Evans, we can choose a day when the sea will be calm. And now, why don't you get into the kayak and start getting the feel of her as soon as possible? Paddle a few miles in smooth water before you try landing where it's rough, and you'll be surprised to find how quickly you get a sense of stability. So Kendrick began a series of lessons in a form of seamanship which, till that morning, he didn't know existed. At first, it was with some nervousness that he stepped into the narrow craft and, when seated, anxiously pushed off from the shore. But before long he was quite at home in her and paddling a good stroke, and then Evans began to initiate him into the art of handling her in the surf, which he soon learned was largely a matter of watchful waiting and then letting the waves do the work. But during these days exercises in the surf were incidental. The principal task was teaching Kendrick all he needed to know of radio apparatus and methods and the special ciphers he was to use for weaving his messages into the enemy traffic. He might not gain access to a transmitter of sufficient power to reach the Azores, even if the best receivers then in use were ready to pick up his signals. With this difficulty in mind, Evans had been experimenting with a new device which had occurred to him for making the receiver on the flagship more sensitive and at the same time more selective, that he might pick out the desired signal, though incredibly faint, from all those abroad in the vibrating ether. As soon as Kendrick had learned his duties and a suitable day should come, he was to go, for his services in Gibraltar were much needed. Evans felt sure his device would work, but it must be installed in the flagship and tested in actual use, and this, if possible, before Kendrick's departure, lest its failure should entail some modification of his instructions. For this, quick work was required. 
About this time, a new batch of ensigns recruited from civil life and put through a four-month course at the Naval Academy arrived at Punta Delgada and were distributed to various billets in the fleet. Among them was a youth named Coffee, alert, smartly dressed, and truly a marvel for etiquette. By the caprice of fortune, this ensign was assigned to the communication force on the flagship as an assistant to the fleet radio officer. As soon as he was thus established, he took occasion to make it clear to all the radio personnel of inferior rank to himself, including Evans, that their duties came under his jurisdiction. There was to be no misunderstanding about that. One Saturday morning, when the work of installing the new device in the receiver was nearing completion, Evans asked the chief radio electrician if he could spare one of the operators to assist him with the job. It's almost time for captain's inspection, sir, said the chief. The boys ain't supposed to be in their dungarees then. Oh, well, said Evans, I can manage about as well by myself. There's not much room for more than one pair of hands on this job anyway. So saying, he clambered and squirmed in behind a varied assortment of apparatus constituting the vitals of the radio room, and in his old dungarees sat down on the steel deck. With knife and pliers, he swiftly fashioned the labyrinth of wires which was to put his new receiving device to the test of actual use, the tar of the insulation rapidly turning his hands a dark brown. As he worked away with the joy of one in his native element, he whistled a tune of his early childhood and soon was quite oblivious of his surroundings. The door of the radio room opened and footsteps approached, followed by more footsteps. For a while, Evans continued to scrape and bend his wires, still whistling as he worked. Presently, he looked up. There stood the captain of the flagship, and beside him, Fraser, chief of staff. Behind them was Lieutenant Commander Elkins and his new assistant, Ensign Coffey. The radio chief and his force of electricians stood at attention for the formalities of the captain's inspection. But the captain, attracted by the sound of whistling, was peering with a look of mild surprise through the maze of electrical gear at the unusual sight of a man who had failed to stop working for inspection. Evans caught Fraser's eye and saw there the suggestion of a smile which bespoke enjoyment of the contrast between this unwanted spectacle and the rest of the ship during inspection. But Coffee was glaring at him with a terrible look of affronted dignity, and this in turn provoked the suggestion of a twinkle in Evans' eye. The captain glanced around the room and passed on, followed by the other officers. But in a moment, Coffee returned and in a sharp voice called, Gunner, come out here. I wish to speak to you. Evans crawled out through the interstices in the gear. What do you mean being in dirty dungarees at captain's inspection, said Coffee. There were changes to be made in the apparatus. They're needed rather urgently, answered Evans. Some captains would rather see work going on than idleness. I rather thought our skipper was that kind. There's a time for work of that sort, answered Coffee stiffly, and there are persons assigned to do it. Didn't you know that an officer, even a warrant officer, isn't supposed to do the manual work of an electrician? I'm afraid I didn't, answered Evans. In fact, in the war with Germany, I heard the skipper of a destroyer rebuking a junior lieutenant for saying just that to an ensign. 
Coffee bit his lip and gulped, then drew himself up straighter than ever and said, Well, understand hereafter that at captain's inspection you are to be in full uniform, standing at attention. With these words he turned and marched out of the radio room. But Coffee was not wholly satisfied with the success of his effort to improve Evans' morale. Therefore, early in the afternoon, he sent a message to Evans commanding his immediate presence in his room. When the messenger arrived and delivered his message, Evans, pliers in hand, was racing against time. If he could complete the installation of his new device in half an hour, he would be in time to test it by listening in on a schedule of signals from a distant station, and in his eagerness to see if it would fulfill his expectations, he worked at a feverish speed. On receipt of Coffee's message, he seized a piece of paper and wrote on it, Am hastening to complete installation in time for JXZ schedule. If you approve, please give me written instructions to continue till job is completed. Handing it to the messenger, he said, Take that to Commander Elkins in the flag office and wait for an answer. Then he continued to cut and fit the wires, handling them now and then with an almost vicious aggressiveness. Soon the messenger returned with the desired instructions. Please tell Mr. Coffee, said Evans, that Commander Elkins has instructed me to continue at this installation till it is completed. Soon the job was done. Hot and grimy, Evans seized the headphones, made his adjustments, and listened. The schedule began and the signals continued for some time, during which a variety of tests and measurements were needed to determine the success of the new device. In part, these tests were satisfactory, but they revealed the need of further study and modification. The schedule over, Evans went to his room, deep in thought, and was cleaning up preparatory to a session of slide rule calculations when again a messenger came from Coffee demanding his presence. Coffee had seen him walking slowly toward his room, and the installation was therefore no longer an alibi. To Coffee's room he went and presented himself meekly at the door. Gunner, said Coffee with great dignity, you are not taking your duties in the right spirit. You excuse yourself from observing the amenities on board ship on account of a wiring job. You must understand that discipline and morale are more important than apparatus. Now, I want to see if you are up to standard in the matter of those things we expect all of you to know. I'll just ask you a few questions. Can you tell me what is meant by the cadence? The cadence, answered Evans. The only kind of cadence I know is the concluding phrase in a piece of music. Music, echoed Coffee. You'll have to face more music than you like if you don't look out. The cadence is something which every second-class seaman is supposed to know, as you will see if you consult your Blue Jackets manual. And he held up a copy of this book to give emphasis to his words. He then tried one or two more questions about infantry maneuvers, unearthing in Evans a woeful degree of ignorance which in no wise eased the outraged state of his mind. Finally, he summoned a messenger and sent him for a rifle. When it was brought, he handed it to Evans and said, Now, let me see you demonstrate the maneuvers in the manual of arms as you would to a raw recruit. Evans took the rifle and examined the mechanism of the breach for a moment, then looked up at Coffee and said, 
Really? It's no use my trying to do that. It's so long since I had anything to do with that sort of thing that I've forgotten the whole of it. With these words, he handed the gun back to Coffee, who received it with a gesture of contempt and said, And you, a gunner, how in heaven's name did you ever get your rating? Perhaps you'd get that best from the officers that enrolled me, answered Evans mildly. Don't you ever say sir in speaking to a superior officer, asked Coffee sharply. Not often. In fact, come to think of it, I don't know that I ever do. Most officers I talk with don't seem to care whether I do or not. Coffee returned to ground on which he felt more comfortable. You have shown, he said, a degree of ignorance which would shame a third-class electrician. In a warrant officer, it is appalling. You deserve to be demoted. Go to your room and study your Blue Jackets manual till you know the things every seaman should know. And don't let me catch you again giving such answers as you've given tonight. That will do. As Evans retired, he muttered to himself, What a jolly chap to have about the ship. Well, I trust he's through jawing at me for the present. The next morning, Evans, having with the aid of his trusty slide rule, arrived at a decision as to the method of correcting the remaining weak points in his new receiving device, was making his way to the radio room to apply the results of his calculations. On deck, he met Commander Elkins. Well, Evans, said he, what was the matter yesterday? I never knew you to worry about written authority when it came to tinkering with apparatus. I guess I must have had a fit of conscience, answered Evans absently. Conscience? What made you want to break out a conscience? I just wanted to be sure I wasn't getting insubordinate. Who's been putting that kind of idea into your head, said Elkins. Not you, answered Evans. Commander Elkins looked off over the blue sea with a puzzled expression and watched the speed launches dashing to and fro on their errands among the ships of the fleet. Then, as the truth dawned on him, he turned to Evans and said, Has Ensign Coffee been bothering you? Since you ask me, said Evans, he was rather a nuisance yesterday. He's young yet, said Elkins, and takes himself a bit seriously. Then there's another thing. He told me when he came that Commander Rich had spoken to him before he left Washington and told him to keep his eyes open for insubordination or unmilitary conduct on the part of warrant officers or chief petty officers with whom he had to do, and if he found such to deal severely with it. I don't know why Commander Rich should have said that, it looks as if he had heard some rumors of things being too free and easy and unofficial here in the fleet. Anyway, the fact that Commander Rich saw fit to say that to him has doubtless increased his sense of importance. It will probably wear off, but remember, his rank is above yours, and respect for rank has to be maintained as part of the system. So, be as tactful as you can, and try to avoid rows with him, even if it involves a little sacrifice of your working time now and then. Before the next schedule, the remaining defects had been eliminated, and that night Evans felt ready to trust the receiver for the performance of its delicate task. Soon, Kendrick's training was complete, and all was ready for him to start on his adventurous errand. A few days after Kendrick's departure, Evans was to listen in at stated times every day, and at these times Kendrick was to make a special effort to establish communication. 
With the aid of Jeremy at the weather station, a calm spell was chosen in which to send him off. A scout cruiser, equipped with the necessary gear for launching a seaplane, was ordered to prepare for the voyage, and a fast seaplane was tuned up for a long flight. When the weather conditions were pronounced favorable and the day was set for departure, Evans and Kendrick went, as soon as it was dark, to the hiding place of the kayak, Kendrick carrying a nondescript bundle containing his personal effects for the voyage, including the means of effecting a wonderful array of disguises. Evans helped him launch the kayak and exhorted the little ship to do her best. Then Kendrick, stowing his bundle under the deck, stepped in and paddled off into the darkness, now quite at home with this mode of locomotion, and in a moment was lost to view. In a few minutes he came alongside the scout cruiser, at the foot of a ladder hanging over the ship's side, where he was met by an officer. No enlisted men were in sight, for it had been arranged by this officer that none should be where they could witness the arrival of this peculiar-looking craft. The officer lowered a rope, which Kendrick secured around the kayak before coming up the ladder. These two then hoisted her on board and stowed her in a prearranged hiding place. A few minutes later, the cruiser let go her mooring and slipped out through the gate in the net, which was opened as she approached and closed at once behind her. It was now early in December, and the long nights afforded the cruiser the cover of darkness during most of her journey. All night and all day, and the next night till after midnight, she steamed eastward. At two in the morning, she stopped about 250 miles from Cape Trafalgar. With none but those needed for the work to witness the proceeding, the kayak was removed from her hiding place and lashed to the seaplane in such a manner that she could easily be cast loose when the seaplane had alighted on the water. Kendrick took his place in the plane, followed by the pilot and the mechanician, and in a moment they shot out into the air, the engine roaring in their ears. The first red streak of dawn was showing over the eastern horizon when the seaplane hovered and came down on the calm surface of the sea, trailing a white streak of spray for a moment, then coming to rest. Fifteen miles away lay the Spanish coast. Losing no time, Kendrick cut loose the kayak from her lashings, climbed in, waved goodbye, and paddled off into the northeast, keeping the light of the dawn on his starboard beam. The seaplane rose and flew away, and in less than three hours was hoisted aboard the cruiser, which headed for Punta Delgada, and not ten of all her complement of officers and men had even a vague idea of the purpose for which their excursion had been made. Kendrick had a compass by which to steer as soon as it was light. He wished to land in the twilight, and with ten hours at his disposal, it was not necessary to paddle constantly to reach the shore before dark. So, without exerting himself, he was near enough the shore to study its character by the middle of the afternoon. Then he took it easy, waiting so far from shore that his tiny boat would scarcely be visible to the naked eye, and watching land, sea, and sky for observers who might detect his arrival. Then the sun set, and choosing a lonely-looking spot, Kendrick paddled quickly inshore to avail himself of the fast-fading light in choosing a place to land. 
Through the line of white foam that fringed the shore, he picked out a recess where the force of the waves appeared broken, dodged the outlying rocks, and soon, with a vast sense of relief, was dragging the kayak up on dry land. In the dark, he studied the ground around him and found a place to hide the kayak so completely that he could feel assured she would not be found and thus give a dangerous clue to the enemy sleuths. Onshore in Spain, he was once more in a familiar environment, one that brought his extraordinary faculties into play. With nothing but his wits and the small bundle of belongings he had brought under the deck of the kayak, he launched himself on the enterprise of getting into Gibraltar unnoticed and making himself desired as a radio operator and trusted in that capacity. How he overcame the innumerable and formidable obstacles to such a course would require a volume in itself. But that is another story, and we must return to Punta Delgada. After a week had elapsed, Evans began listening every day at the appointed hours to see if the enemy traffic showed any signs of Kendrick's magic touch. The excuse of testing his new device had to be worked for all it was worth until one operator remarked to another after he had gone, he's tested it every way he can. He seems to be so pleased with it, he just wants to listen in, even if there's nothing particular to pick up. Three weeks elapsed, during which Evans and Barton met now and then and speculated over Kendrick's probable fortunes and the prospect of hearing from him. At last, late one afternoon, as Evans was listening in, he picked up a pencil and began writing on a slip of paper. Slowly, he wrote, only five or six words a minute instead of the usual 20 to 25 at which messages are received. For nearly five minutes, he wrote, then stopped, and after listening a moment more, he took off the headphones and slipped out of the radio room. Taking the first boat ashore, he hastened to Commander Barton. What's the news? asked Barton eagerly as Evans entered his office. He's there. Got an operator's job that gives him access to a good transmitter, answered Evans, and he pulled out of his pocket the slip of paper with Kendrick's message and handed it to Barton. That's real business, said Barton, with unrestrained joy on reading the message. A long conference ensued in which Barton and Evans reviewed the possibilities opened by this new channel of communication with Herringham in Constantinople and laid their plans for making the most of it. End of chapter 8